Hi, Steve Dace here for Levin TV. Subscribe right now at levintv.com and get pro-America, tell it like it is, conservatism, five nights a week from the great one, Mark Levin. It's America's new nightly town hall. Subscribe at levintv.com. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Thanks for tuning in here to the Steve Day Show, a special edition. Our annual Independence Day program. If you are listening to this, that means it is either Independence Day or it's just around the corner. Happy America to you. The goal of this special program each and every year is to celebrate, but also commemorate what it is we are acknowledging here this day. The reason for the season, if you will. And of course, we always love to know what you think about what we think. You can email us, steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Gentlemen, if I ask the average American, what does Independence Day mean to you? Aaron, you believe they would say what? They would probably say something like, uh, I still think there's some sort of baseline knowledge uh, that we were a long time ago declaring uh, independence from something. Maybe it doesn't go any deeper than that, but I think uh, there's a general knowledge that uh, Independence Day is America's independence from something. Todd. What do you think most Americans would say? Average man on the street. It would be something very Oprah-like. The freedom to be whatever you want to be. And that's not nearly good enough, but that's what it would be. Hmm. Do you guys believe most Americans will spend any time at all revisiting the founding traditions, ideals, that this day represents. How many Americans do you think really will do that over the course of this holiday, the the holiday weekend, etc.? Uh, by and large, uh, a very small percentage. I mean, the brats are on the grill. Uh, you know, everybody's uh, out on the lake or uh, gone doing something outdoors. And uh, oh yeah, there's fireworks over there. There's just so many distractions, and I just don't think people care anymore. Almost none. I mean, we're getting to the point uh, that people are going to start complaining about being triggered by patriotic music. Uh, uh, honestly, I think we might be dangerously close to going in the opposite direction. We'll, it will be purposefully avoided. You know, one of the things I think we see in our day and age, because we are losing our legacy along the lines of what you guys were just describing. And so whenever you see this happening, uh, we have a tendency, human nature does, to devolve into one of two extremes. Uh, the one extreme, which, of course, we know very well, which is to um, hate on our legacy, urinate all over it, uh, and be ashamed of it. 
Uh, the other is to build it up into some sort of mythic proportion. Hagiography, sure. Yes, as if these uh, individuals um, didn't have to repent uh, to Jesus of their sins because they gave us the Constitution and it's salvation by Americanism. Uh, and we all go to the Church of George Washington. That you sort of see this happening, I think, some in our day and age, do you not? And 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 neither one of those things is true. And, and I think our founding, warts and all, is something to be proud of, doesn't require embellishment, nor shame. In fact, I think we are to look at, just as we do the great figures in the Bible, when we look at their brokenness, and we see that God worked through them in order to be merciful to us, and to, his, and to his creation, he chose sovereignly to work through such flawed beings in order to show his mercy, grace, and love. We should do the same when we look at the people who founded the country. We don't need to whitewash their histories. Not everybody was Benjamin Rush or Patrick Henry, for goodness sakes. Some were very flawed people. Some were their DNA's version of a hedonist. Instead, we are to see that through their brokenness and through their fragility, providence arose nonetheless. And it wasn't because of how great they were that we are here today. But it is, be, it is because of their recognition that they were not great. And their firm reliance upon divine providence and a willingness to look critically through history to see why had previous experiments in human freedom failed. It was actually not their greatness that gave us what we have today, I would argue, but their humility. And I think that is a legacy that we don't have to run from, that we should embrace the truths of whatever flaws these people had, but do so in a way that honors the truths in which they stood for, which is what gave us our way of life today, Todd. Yeah, some of the founders who were the most theologically loosey-goosey, broadly speaking, said some of the most profound things along the lines of what you're talking about. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson and I would have a lot of theological disagreements. Ideologically, he might be my favorite founding father, not named Patrick Henry. He was almost right about everything, Todd. Almost. Yeah, and and it's and that's why it's profound. You, you know, you can't try to turn these guys uh, into Benny, um, the the guy who hits people with coats. Benny know? Hinn. Benny Hinn. There you go. I mean, th these guys ran a broad spectrum of theological difference. Uh, they weren't all, uh, you know, a revivalist uh, sitting under a tent. Uh, but when it came down. And the word is crucial. I'd imagine you're going to expand on it. Providence. These people understood that they had gift wrapped for them multiple moments in terms of bringing all them all together at this time, in terms of military uh, opportunities that were grabbed out of impossibility. Uh, they worshipped at this altar of divine providence. Yeah, and we'll get into this in, in much greater detail, but if you just read the Declaration of Independence and you see all of the signers, and you talk about the the, the, the difference in, in theological um, uh, ability, well, not abilities, but theological understanding that all of these signers had, uh, but just from a human perspective as well, these people were doctors. They were, a lot of them were lawyers, politicians, some were preachers. 
from just a human perspective, uh, they could have had the opportunity to have a lot of ego, yet it is clear in just the first couple of paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, they understood human nature, and they were able to put those egos, if there were egos, away to bed and be able to form something that was probably the closest and probably has been the closest to God's design for government in human history. So we're going to spend most of this show looking back at that legacy. We're neither going to blow it out of proportion, nor are we going to uh, be ashamed, because all we have to do is just show it, and it will speak for itself. The reason why there are so many biblical analogies to the founding of this country is because the most influential item in the founding of the country was the Bible. That's why there are so many parallels. It was the dominant thought process of the day. It framed and shaped many of the arguments of the people that were making the arguments for our independence, whether they had ever stepped foot in a church or had been there recently or not. One of my favorite lines of the Bible is uh, the great uh, Charles Spurgeon's. When asked why he doesn't engage in defending the Bible against textual criticism, Spurgeon replied with, I would no more defend the Bible than defend a caged lion. Simply let the lion out of its cage and it will defend itself just fine. And that's what we're going to do on this show with our founding legacy. We will be joined even by a very special guest later on, founding father John Adams himself will be here, and we will hear a special message from him. And if I could echo what you said, Michael Novak did a fantastic work, a book called On Two Wings, and how this country was founded on uh, on the Bible and on the Enlightenment. But people like to dismiss, the, the secularists like to dismiss the biblical part, that it was only Locke, only Montesquieu. People, and you talk about Locke quite frequently, but this, he did a deep dive on the citations of the diaries, the letters written, and the dominant thrust of the quotations come from the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Yeah, and thanks for, uh, for the, thanks for bringing that up too, Steve, just looking at it, what it was, because in my lifetimes, and, and maybe in your and Todd's lifetimes as well, um, I, I can't remember a time uh, where just in media and uh, culture in general, where there wasn't revisionist history about our nation's founding uh, taking place. So I think it's important uh, to actually just just look at what happened. No revisionist history on this show, just the history. And it will begin with the document that started it all next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Want your country back? Keep listening for instructions. This is Steve Dace. A special Independence Day edition of the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We have devolved from a nation born on the 4th of July to one which has become dumb about the 4th of July. 
A prophet of old once said, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Today, our stunning lack of knowledge of what it is we're really celebrating means we could be the generation that sees liberty perish in America. We don't want to see that happen on our watch. Our founding fathers intended this holiday to be about much more than barbecues and camping trips. They intended it to be a commemoration of American exceptionalism. Consider this excerpt from a letter founding father John Adams sent to his wife Abigail on July 3rd, 1776, and I quote, Independence Day will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other. From this time forward, forevermore. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means. And that posterity, that means legacy to the 18th century mind. That means a divine judge of history to the 18th century mind. And that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction. And even though we should rue it, which I trust in God, we shall not, unquote. Now, what does it mean to rue something? It means to regret it. It means to find something that you once lavished, you now lament. To view something that at the time you thought was an accomplishment, was a blazed trail, was a benchmark, but you now see it as a bittersweet moment in hindsight. Gentlemen, are we perilously close to becoming this generation that Adams warns his wife about, where we are ruining our founding? We have come to rue the day of our own legacy, of our own birth. Are we at that historical brink, do you believe? Absolutely. I think we absolutely are, Aaron, don't you? I would, I would have to agree, yeah. Nowadays, if you're a community that takes uh, that attempts to take Adam's advice, let's say you based your Independence Day celebration as a city, as a as a as a county, uh, or as a state around everything that Adams just laid out in this letter, you know what would happen? You'd end up in court for violating the so-called separation of church and state. Now, why have we strayed so far from this path? I believe it's because most of us have never truly read, studied. And thus understood the words in our founding document, the Declaration of Independence. In my opinion, the Declaration is one of the greatest treatises ever written. Given what was at stake and the history that was writing on its every syllable, it had to be. It is formatted like a legal argument, and that is on purpose because that is exactly what it was. 
I know we see things in terms of rants because we have talk radio or in terms of blogs because we have social media or status updates. This was an academic exercise. This was a legal briefing. It is the opening argument which lays the groundwork for the case, followed by the presenting of evidence that reinforces the case. And then it concludes with the closing argument with the verdict to be rendered by history. It is a legal document. Now, much of its terminology and ideas are foreign concepts to those of us worked over by political correctness and statism in our day and age, but they remain every bit as true and inspired now as they were when the ink first fell from the pen of Thomas Jefferson 241 years ago. It begins with these words, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. Now, right away, Jefferson is letting you know this is a document of separation. Secession. These United States are seceding from the British crown. Jefferson continues, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Now, Jefferson is making the case that there is a higher law than the laws that bound or bind the colonies of England, that they are going to unbound, if you will. He invokes the highest law of them all, in justifying this secession, the laws of nature and nature's God. Then Jefferson writes what essentially becomes the mission statement of American exceptionalism. If you want to know what is Americanism, what is it? What is it? When, when Chesterton said yours is the only country ever founded by a creed, what is that creed? It is these words, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. In a nutshell, Jefferson says this, there is a God, and it's not government. Our rights come from that God and not government. Therefore, government's only duty is the protection and preservation of those God-given rights. And a people doesn't have to consent to being governed by a government that is derelict in that God-given duty. That is it right there. Jefferson then enters into evidence 27 grievances, or what he calls repeated injuries and usurpations. This is a list of documented injustices committed by King George III, which are in violation of not just good government, but also the laws of nature and nature's God. Worth noting is that abuse of the judiciary is the most named violation. Similar to how leftists today use the judiciary to usurp the Constitution. Isn't that something? There is nothing new under the sun, Aaron. There is absolutely not, and it's uh, amazing how these sorts of things, human nature always has a way of coming full circle. We're, we're living in a time where judges and people in general are just dismissing the Constitution simply based on the fact it, it's old, mm -hmm. it's outdated. 
everything you mentioned so far, they were making not just a legal argument, they're making an ontological argument, a theory of being mm -hmm. who we are under the sun at all times forevermore so that this can never be dismissed as outdated. That's where the term unalienable comes in. That's exactly what you're describing there, Todd. Well said. More on the Declaration of Independence here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. We're not concerned about what you think, but why you think it. Steve Dace. Back here on a special edition of the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. It's our annual Independence Day program. And we're looking at, for my money, the greatest non-divinely inspired treatise in American history, the Declaration, or in world history, I should say. Finally, Jefferson notes in the closing, in, in his closing, that this act of secession is not to be taken lightly. But only as a last resort, once the crown made it clear, they won't waver from their tyranny. That all other options were exhausted. They, they did not want to do this. They, they did not seek to no longer be British subjects, to take this harsh road. They tried as best they could to work within the system, but the system wouldn't work. Jefferson writes, quote, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled Appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions due in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, unquote. Jefferson concludes that by noting the hope of these newly free and independent states comes from a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, mutually pledging to one another our lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. Meaning they were relying on a power above themselves and then holding themselves accountable to that power. Sadly, we are no longer free and independent states today. We are all wards of the welfare state. We no longer seem to be a people of honor, but a people of entitlement. We no longer rely upon divine providence, but tolerance. Tolerating everything other than the obedience to the creator in whose image we are made. That's the only thing we seemingly won't tolerate. We are no longer, we no longer model this declaration to the rest of the world, but rather the Hegelian dialectic, it seems, instead. Where the thesis and the antithesis mold into one argument. And you looked from man to pig and pig to man and back to pig again and you couldn't tell the difference. I wrote a book a couple of years ago, Rules for Patriots, How Conservatives Can Win Again. I cited the results of a poll of Americans who had been elected to public office. It was done by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Here's what the poll found. Only 49% could correctly identify all three branches of government. Only 46% knew Congress, not the president, has the power to declare war. 
Only 15% knew the phrase, quote, separation of church and state never actually appears anywhere in the U.S. Constitution. And this is my favorite. Only 57% knew what the Electoral College was, and 20% of them actually thought it was for training those aspiring for higher office. That's what they thought the Electoral College was. You went there to learn how to get elected to office. Gentlemen, I submit to you here today that aforementioned prophet of old is still right. We are perishing from a lack of knowledge. And an ignorant people, Todd, cannot be a self-government people, which is why we've traded one tyrant an entire ocean away for thousands of tyrants right here at home. And thus, it can be said flat out, with no degree of hyperbole, that we deserve to be ruled, as you are fond of saying on this show. It is something we have earned. It is something we have merited. Many times throughout human history, you see people ruled uh, at the point of a sword, a fist. Uh, they, they couldn't do anything about it. In this case, we deserve this more than any other people in history because we could have done everything about it at any given point in the last how many years, decades. This has been a long, slow march to where we are at and we deserve every bit of it and thomas jefferson i think knew that i mean he wrote earlier in the declaration of independence experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed i think that's probably pretty accurate to where a lot of us are nowadays now, some of you listening to this, you're you're convicted, but you also feel like I can't make a difference. I'm just one man. I'm just one person. What if I were to tell you all of this that we now have taken for granted the last 241 years came down to just one person? That story is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Right versus wrong, not right versus left. This is Steve Dace. Back here on the Steve Dace Show, special Independence Day edition. If you're listening to this, it's either Independence Day or about to be. Happy Independence Day to you. Notice we call it Independence Day, not 4th of July. Because we call it Christmas, not December 25th. There was December 25th long before there was a Christmas. It's just the day after December 24th, unless it's Christmas, right? This is just the day after July 3rd, unless it's Independence Day. Now, I know a lot of you listening to us go through the Declaration of Independence and lament how much of that legacy has been lost you feel as if, you know, what can I do? I'm, I'm, yes, you guys are right, but I feel helpless. I'm just one person. Well, in our way of life, one patriot can make a difference. In fact, if you look at the history, it is possible that all of this is the result of one person. Likely somebody you've never heard of. And his name was Caesar 
Rodney. He is missing from many of today's history classes. Yet just as today, not every American was interested in the things of liberty, this was also the case during the American Revolution. Not all the folks in America were interested in liberty and justice for all. Many colonists actually favored reconciliation with the crown. It's the lesser of two evils. It was good enough for our generation. If we break away, we have no guarantee that it will work. Any of these arguments sound familiar, by the way? They have echoes today, don't they? While George Washington led America into war and the Continental Congress prepared to birth America's Declaration of Independence, Caesar Rodney served in both capacities. He was a delegate from Delaware to both the Stamp Act Congress and later to the Continental Congress. Mr. Rodney was also a military leader for the the, the colonial militia, having begun his military career in the French and Indian War. After Lexington and Concord, the shots heard around the world, Mr. Rodney remarked, quote, Now one was neither Tory nor Whig. It was either dependence or independence, unquote. Of Rodney's military experience at the Battle of Trenton, George Washington remarked, and I quote, The readiness with which you took to the field at the period most critical to our affairs, the industry you used in bringing out the militia of the Delaware State, and the alertness observed by you in forwarding on the troops from Trenton reflect the highest honor, your character, and place your attachment to the cause in a most distinguished point of view, unquote. Could you imagine having those words said about you? By George Washington. Despite his wartime heroism, however, it is the legislative capacity that probably is Caesar Rodney's most heroic accomplishment. At home, Mr. Rodney helped lead the Delaware Assembly in voting on June 15th, 1776 to sever all ties with Britain. He also took part in the Continental Congress that drafted the Declaration of Independence. By early June, however, he had, or by early July, I should say, he had returned home to Delaware uh, to tend to many of his other official duties. He was a government official. He had people to govern, disputes to settle. He also needed some rest. Rodney suffered from both asthma and a rare form of facial cancer that left him disfigured and in a constant state of discomfort. The cancer slowly ate away at both uh, Caesar Rodney's face and his energy. Referring to his disorder, Caesar said, quote, that horrid and most obstinate disorder, unquote. As the final vote came near to ratify the declaration, the delegates had decided on an all or nothing approach. Either we hang together or we hang separately. Similar to how my wife and I do things. If there's a disagreement on a major decision, we're out. We don't argue with each other. We're either in this together or we're not. So every state had to agree to ratify this Declaration of Independence and stand together against British oppression. Or together they might sink back into surf-like dependence. As the vote neared, Delaware's other two delegates were at a deadlock. Thomas McKean favored independence while George Reed found it a too radical of a move. Thus, the Delaware delegation was deadlocked and in danger of voiding the entire Declaration of Independence. Mr. Jefferson's eloquent call for revolution to protect the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness almost went down in flames. Caesar Rodney could not let that happen. Upon being notified of the situation, Mr. Rodney made a midnight ride from Delaware to Philadelphia. That dwarfs even the famous ride of Paul Revere in importance. 
Mr. Revere's ride was indeed a call for readiness in the defense of liberty, but it was Mr. Rodney's ride that quite literally turned the wheel of history and changed the world. Caesar Rodney's ride spanned 80 miles during an, imp- during an oppressive summer heat. And did we mention his skin condition in that heat? Violent summertime thunderstorms and the accompanying torrential rain. It was a ride that would have challenged any man in the best of health, let alone a man in Rodney's condition. Maybe it could have even been fatal. Through the mud and cobblestone streets, Caesar Rodney somehow made his way alone to Philadelphia. He did this alone in the middle of the night. He was racing toward his destiny. A destiny which would make him a marked man in the eyes of the British crown and quite possibly serve as a death sentence, assuming he survived the ride. Through a mixture of the hand of providence and his own indelible passion for liberty, Caesar Rodney made it to the floor and cast the deciding vote for Delaware in favor of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. As he cast his vote, it is recorded that he said, quote, As I believe the voice of my constituents and all of sensible and honest men is in favor of independence, my own judgment concurs with them. I vote for independence, unquote. Thus defying the elements and the illness that ravaged his body, Caesar Rodney put his own sacred honor on the line in the defense of liberty. His vote put Delaware in the yes column, which ensured that the Declaration of Independence would pass and that a new American nation conceived in liberty would rise from the ashes of oppression. The world had its shining city on a hill to serve as a beacon of freedom to the world. And it is Caesar Rodney's irrepressible spirit of liberty that America gets to thank for why we sit here 241 years later. One person in our way of life can make a difference because in the case of Caesar Rodney, he made all the difference. Listening to Steve Dace. Check us out online at SteveDace.com, where you get show archives and opinions each day. You're listening to Steve Dace. want to thank our friends at Red State for giving us the story of Caesar Rodney that you just heard on our special Independence Day edition. The breakdown of the Declaration of Independence, that was my analysis, but I don't want to take credit for somebody else's work. So congrats to Red State for providing the history of Caesar Rodney and for, gentlemen, giving us a reminder that one person can make the difference. Yeah, and the battle for freedom and liberty as we just heard in um, that, that story of Caesar Rodney and the beginning of this, the signing of the Declaration of uh, Independence, the battle for freedom and liberty doesn't always happen on the battlefield. It happens in our hearts and minds, deciding what kind of a person I ought to be, what kind of people we ought to be. And then sometimes, lots of times, you do have to go out and fight for it. But it's that battle in your own mind. Do I want to be a free person? What I love about him is that he was a man of action, despite 
uh, his uh, disability. It could have been caused to fade uh, to the into the background, especially when he considers the giants that he was surrounded by. But a lot of our so-called betters, the ones who are more equipped, smarter, more well-positioned, a lot of time they're always calculating in ways about just what how things are going to look. And that breeds fear. This man set all that aside and said, I can do things now. I can make this ride. I can participate in the military. I can be a legislator. I can all these things simply based upon my will. And so all of us sitting here today, we make excuses. We're not smart enough. Uh, We're scared. People are going to call us names. Well, I'm sure all of that applies to Rosa Parks. The smallest of all people sometimes are the one that can make the most giant, glorious stands. And what we see, both in our history, but we see this throughout the the arc of human history, as history is never won by those who succumbed to the paradigm of their day. That, that led them to the point of outrage in the first place, that, that led them to the point of revolt in the first place, that led them to the point of moral turpitude in the first place, that, that led them to the point of oppression in the first place. History is never won by this majority that says, well, we can't defy it. It's all we know. Um, like maggots who filth is all they know. When they, when they could evolve and fly out of the filth and go see a great big world out there, they're just content with the filth because it's what they know. It's the only existence they've ever had. They don't know any better. No, history is not won by such people. History is won by the people who blew up the paradigm every single time. And now, sadly, many of those people, when they blow up the paradigm at that time, really have no idea they're winning history. And a lot of times they do have to pay the ultimate penalty for that. But, you know, we typically name our children after those people. Their legacies tend to outlive them. Those who play along with the system, their legacies tend to die along with them. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Back with hour two of our special Independence Day show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. So let us know. You can email us, steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. We begin this second hour of our special Independence Day program with words from one of our founding fathers himself, former president, former vice president, signer of the Declaration of Independence, John Adams.
says, I appreciate this opportunity to take the floor. I do understand this gathering. It is precisely what my colleagues and I had in mind, what we dreamed of, why we abandoned our homeland, our England, and why we abandoned our King George. I am John Adams. I will become President of the United States. I will become the first of only two presidents whose son will also become president. But I will primarily be known for my work with the Declaration of Independence and the founding of this land. I was disliked by many, considered brutish, pushy, but I always professed my calling to be bold. My attitude has always been, come with me in Christ or get out of my way. I come to this Congress with two proposals for your, excuse me, with two proposals for your consideration, after which I intend to depart and charge you with defining their merit. Proposal number one, that the Christian heritage of this land shall be revealed, shared, taught, and stressed to all American children. In other words, the Christian history will be included in the public education. Fifty-five members attended the Constitutional Convention. Fifty-two of those fifty-five were actively involved in their respective churches. Did you know? The words God and Jesus occur numerous times in the writings of our founders. Hundreds of times. Oftentimes a synonym was used, such as Master, Heavenly Father, Divine Provider, Jehovah Jireh. My friend George Washington used 54 different references to our Lord. Did you know? 54. Likewise, a hundred years later, a Mr. Abraham Lincoln will use 49 such references, and a Mr. Robert E. Lee will use 45. Did you know? Thus, the profound significance and impact of Jesus Christ on the history of this land, let alone the profound significance and impact of Jesus Christ on some rather remarkable Americans. One such American, a personal friend of mine, was Mr. Benjamin Franklin. And despite his uh, shortcomings in morality, he too understood... God's divine providence here. This is on file from the Constitutional Convention dated June 28, 17 and 87. Franklin was addressing the morning worship, excuse me, uh, the Congress. Well, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly appealing to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of our contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible to danger, we had daily prayers in this very room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable an empire can rise?
without his aid. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And I firmly believe in this. My friends, that was Benjamin Franklin. That is but one example of the Christian heritage of this land. There are numerous others. Here, Patrick Henry, yes, he said, give me liberty or give me death. But only after, he said, an appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left. We shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations, and he will raise up friends to fight our battles. Is life so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God, and only then give me liberty or give me death. Did you know the secular historians must have omitted something, don't you think? Mr. Thomas Jefferson believed that the constitutional freedom of religion is the most inalienable and sacred of all human rights. Mr. George Washington, without an humble imitation of the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Mr. Abraham Lincoln, the only assurances of our nation's safety is to lay our foundation in morality and religion. Ladies and gentlemen, I suggest to you the Christian character of this land is not being taught to your children. Furthermore, the historical significance of Jesus Christ on the history of this land, like a woolen mitten on frigid fingers, has been a perfect fit, allowing God's hand to guide this country to its survival and lead her to her divine destiny. The Bible tells us we shall reap what we sow. My friends, the Christian seeds have already been planted by numerous Christian men and women, including philosophers and presidents, generals and gentlemen, patriots and housewives and ministers. Take care of this Christian land. Let your children know of the Christian seeds planted by Christian men, such as Jefferson, Washington, such as, such as Mr. James Madison, another future president. Such as Mr. John Hancock, the very first signer of the Declaration of Independence. Such as Mr. Noah Webster, the prolific thinker and remarkable author of the dictionary found in many of your homes. These were Christian men. Your efforts to teach that Christian heritage will not only be nurturing to all, but perhaps eye-opening to self And certainly appreciated by our Heavenly Father. Well, if you will excuse me, the heat here is somewhat reminiscent of the heat I experienced one summer many years ago. In the village of Philadelphia, that first proposal sets the foundation for my second most difficult and certainly controversial proposal, that our future choices, yours and mine, our future choices will be guided, guarded, and governed by those Christian principles and ideals set forth in the first proposal. In other words, 
Our Christian choices will be based upon Christian principles, not worldly principles. My friends, tomorrow will bring about numerous challenges, numerous changes. You know that. Why, the devil himself will attempt to erode the foundation of that first proposal by using man's own intellect, own inquisitiveness to tempt and eventually destroy those Christian principles and ideals. More from Founding Father John Adams on this special Independence Day edition in a moment. Bible and the Constitution don't just apply to Democrats. This is Steve Dace. On the special Independence Day edition of the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review, let's conclude our annual special message from Founding Father John Adams. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what might happen if the devil himself were to tamper with our future course of events? Can you imagine? For example. What a shame it would be if one day man were to discover how to eliminate a child prior to its birth and the government approved it. What a shame it would be if one day a new type of cannonball was developed, one capable of enormous explosive power, even including clouds of poisonous plagues, and the peoples and the nations accepted their occasional use. And and what a shame it would be if one day a a device, an image box of some sort, was capable of sending evil images into our homes. And we not only permitted it, but promoted it so thoroughly and participated in it so thoroughly as to allow its evil tendencies to desensitize our moralities and virtually destroy our family time together. What a shame it would be if one day the love and compassion we have for our neighbors became secluded and isolated behind locked doors, privacy fencing, and hedges. And what a shame it would be if one day 
a person or group in authority were to decide the family unit is not really defined, a sexual rebellion including same-sex relationships was allowed like smoke to seep under the doors into our log cabins, altering our marriage covenant and the family unit itself and the Christian neighborhood complained in private but remained silent and spineless in their public opposition? What a shame it would be if one day man were to learn to soar like birds in some type of flying apparatus only to turn around and use such a device to inflict harm on their fellow man. What a shame it would be if one day greed and ownership and materialism and corporate wealth became more important than giving, honesty, and helping thy neighbor to cut firewood. And lastly, what if our freedom to pray, what if our freedom to worship and pray freely and openly were taken away by our own government? If King George were to arrive on this soil tomorrow and prevent your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren from praying during schooling, well, such unlikely abominations must be repelled. Yes, the devil will use worldly men, but you must use the Christian principles and ideals set forth by my friends and my colleagues, your forefathers and your founders fathers to dismember such abominations thus my two proposals I trust you will consider them absorb any wisdom found therein and adjust your lives accordingly oh, oh. well now you know why I was disliked by many Perhaps I have offended you or your neighbor. That was not my intention. But I will not apologize for my Christian heritage. Nor will I stand idly by when I see it being challenged and or ridiculed by future individuals and or events. And lastly, my dear friend, George Washington was constantly found to be in prayer. Did you know? He had been leading our troops against the vastly superior forces of King George. One wintry evening around dusk, a Quaker, ironically a Tory Quaker by the name of Potts, Mr. Isaac Potts, came upon the general. The general was alone at the edge of the wood. Mr. Potts was not seen by the general, but this is what Mr. Potts observed. The general was alone at the edge of the wood. Only his four-legged, trusty, ashen-spotted mount named Nelson stood off his shoulder. It was quiet. It was cold. The general 
was on his knee. So quiet. Only an occasional snort from Nelson nearby colored the chilly, silent air. The general's hands were folded. His stature severe. His head was bowed. And he was praying. Picture that on your imaginary canvas. Picture that. General George Washington. Later, that Tory Quaker who observed this wrote about what he saw that evening outside his village at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. He wrote, If there is anyone on this earth who the Lord will listen to, it is George Washington. And I feel a presentiment that under such a commander there can be no doubt of our eventually establishing our independence and that God in his providence has willed it so. My friends, this country is founded in God. Did you know? You're listening to Steve Dace. Reminding you that Almighty God is always a majority. This is Steve Dace. Back here on a special Independence Day edition of the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Gentlemen, as you listen to the words of founding father John Adams, and we want to give credit where credit is due, that is actually a local actor here in our home state, Michael Ernst who travels the country doing impersonations of famous historical figures. Uh, Charles Carroll, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence, as well as uh, John Adams, are two of the uh, patriotic specialties that he does. Right, And that's those in most of those lines that you heard Michael in uh, recite there were ripped right out of John Adams' own thoughts, speeches, etc., letters at the time. So as you listen to what John Adams, our founding father, has to say to us today, your reaction would be what, Todd? Well, we've already talked about uh, other men of action today. No one should mi- mistake the words you heard from an older John Adams who was simply you know, shaking his fist at the young whippersnappers. This, uh, these are the words and thoughts also of a young John Adams, much younger John Adams, who, after the Boston, Ma- Boston Massacre, was the man, even though his heart was already going in the direction of independence, defended those men and is the reason they were set free. Because this wasn't a simple game of shirts versus skins. Not my country, right or wrong. No. 
my country right or not worth having. Follow the truth wherever it leads. And like he said, multiple, this was a very vain man, a very proud man. How does that man, who's very worried about optics, set that aside and is willing to defend that case at that time because of Almighty God? That is the only reason men like that set their whims, their passions, their furies, their brokenness aside for something way bigger than themselves. Aaron? Well said, Todd. And uh, listening to that, it, it is, it's striking to me, as Todd pointed out actually in the first hour, how much our founders made statements and set this country up in a way that was for all time and all people. This transcended just getting rid of, of King George. This transcended just wanting to have their and, and keep their own property. This was, they were making a statement of how then should we live as people. Hmm. It is astounding to me. And, and I understand that, you know, um, we just heard from an actor, and I'm sure there were liberties taken, but um, just just understanding how much they were making a statement to uh, where they could uh, project into the future and understand that the, these principles they were laying down, that uh, all men are created equal and that we have these inalienable rights, these are for all times and for all people. Nobody can take that away. It is astounding. It is astounding, and it, it's, it's astounding to hear, and I have played that, excerpt on this show for years but it's astounding to hear aspects of the common nomenclature of their day and how uncomfortable discomforting or unsettling it is to hear such language uttered out in the open in a public setting by a by 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 a political official it's just it shows you how how much has changed in terms of just our basic expectation level Todd, our, our basic tolerance for the viewpoints that founded the country, how much of that has been worn away by it's 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 like listening to a man out of time, even for those of us that ascribe to much of what he says, is it not? Well, and this and you talk about this uh, regularly. This is your challenge for what you do for a living. You in many ways, are unapologetic in being that man out of time, going back to these words uncompromisingly. But you also talk about the power of pop culture, of being uh, living in this day but not being of the day. Mm -hmm. So we need to speak the, the exact same ethos, pathos, and logos that is there, but it is no sin to kick it up a notch to speak to where we are right now. May we all cry in the wilderness and eat locusts as long <laughs> as this country or that. is in the state that it is in. So earlier in the show, we told you what the Declaration of Independence meant, but who were the people that wrote it, that ratified it? Who were they really? We will introduce you to those men when we return. Listening to Steve Dace. 
The Bible and the Constitution don't just apply to Democrats. This is Steve Dace. Back here on a special Independence Day edition of the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network. We already told you what the Declaration of Independence meant. Independence, not independent. It's fine. Let's pick it up from there. We already told you what the Declaration of Independence meant, but who were the men who signed it? The late, great Paul Harvey has the rest of the story. But for any eve of the 4th of July, I, Paul Harvey, do herewith bequeath unto you something to remember. You may not be able to quote one line from the Declaration of Independence at this moment. Henceforth, you'll always be able to quote at least one line. It's in the last paragraph where you will recall when I remind you, it says, We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In the Pennsylvania State House that's now called Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the best men from each of the colonies sat down together. This was a very fortunate hour in our nation's history, one of those rare occasions in the lives of men when we had greatness to spare. These were men of means, well-educated, 24 were lawyers and jurists, nine were farmers, owners of large plantations. On June 11, a committee sat down to draw up a declaration of independence. We were going to tell the British fatherland, no more rule by redcoats. Below the dam of ruthless foreign rule, the stream of freedom was running shallow and muddy, and we were going to light a fuse to dynamite that dam. This pact, as Burke later put it, was a partnership between the living and the dead and the yet unborn. There was no bigotry, there was no demagoguery in this group. All had shared hardship. Jefferson finished a draft of the document in 17 days. Congress adopted it in July and so much is familiar history. But now, King George III had denounced all rebels in America as traitors, punishment, for treason was hanging. The names now so familiar to you from the several signatures on that Declaration of Independence, the names were kept secret for six months, for each knew the full meaning of that magnificent last paragraph in which his signature pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. Fifty-six men placed their names beneath that pledge. Fifty-six men knew when they signed that they were risking everything. They knew if they won this fight, the best they could expect would be years of hardship and a struggling nation. And if they lost, they'd face a hangman's rope. But they signed the pledge. And here is the documented fate of that gallant 56. Carter Braxton of Virginia, wealthy planter, trader, saw his ships swept from the seas to pay his debt. He lost his home and all of his properties and died in rags. Thomas Lynch Jr., who signed that pledge, was a third-generation rice grower, aristocrat, large plantation owner. After he signed, his health failed. His wife and he set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never got to France, was never heard from again. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, his family in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. 
Thomas Nelson Jr. of Virginia raised $2 million on his own signature to provision our allies, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiped out his entire estate, and he was never reimbursed by his government. In the final battle for Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his, Nelson's own home, which was occupied by Cornwallis. It was destroyed. Thomas Nelson, Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed, his wife imprisoned. He died within a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed that declaration, was captured and mistreated. His health broken to the extent that he died at 51. His estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields and grist mill were laid waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead, his children gone, his properties gone. And he died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed, his family scattered. Philip Livingston died within a few months from the hardships of the war. John Hancock, history remembers best due to a quirk of fate rather than anything he stood for, that great sweeping signature attesting to his vanity, towers over the others one of the wealthiest men in New England. And yet he stood outside Boston one terrible night of the war. And he said, burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar, if the public good requires it. So he too lived up to the pledge. Of the 56, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked, looted, occupied by the enemy, or burned. Two lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its more merciful bullet. I don't know what impression you had had of the men who met that summer in Philadelphia. But I think it's important that we remember this about them. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. These were men of means. They were rich men, most of them, and had enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal living. Not hungry men, certainly not terrorists, not irresponsible malcontents, not fanatical incendiaries. These men were prosperous men wealthy landowners. They were substantially secure in their prosperity. They had everything to lose. But they considered liberty, and this is as much as I shall say of it. They had learned that liberty is so much more important than security, that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they fulfilled their pledge. They paid the price, and freedom was born. You're listening to Steve Dace. 
This is the show your atheist college professor warned you about. This is Steve Dace. So, gentlemen, as you listen to the late, great Paul Harvey, regale us with the tales of the men who signed that Declaration of Independence. Your reaction is what? Well, you and I love the movies. The key to a really good movie, among other things, is a really good soundtrack. It's important to listen to the the music laid over that. To me, soaring, inspiring. But I fear to a lot of people in this culture, that either sounds like elevator music to them, because the whole thing is a snooze to them, or, and I'm not sure if this is worse or just a different version of pathetic, or it's people today who would replace that because they think it's an old, dusty, broken document with the equivalent of clown car music. They've got no patience for it. Aaron? Yeah, that is uh, that is striking, Todd. And um, it is important to understand that the men who signed the Declaration of Independence were smart. They were wealthy. They had, as Paul Harvey pointed out, they had everything to lose. But most importantly, in this revolution, they were men who aspired to something. This is not like what the French Revolution became. This is not a group of people so ticked off at their rulers, at their overlords, that they deposed them, and then they didn't know where to stop after that. Yes, it's not a, this, this was not a tantrum. This was not a tantrum. This was not a destructive revolution. This was a revolution that aspired to uh, what humans could be if they understood that there's a cause greater than them. Everything you two just said is why we have done this here on this show. So that we don't become the people Ronald Reagan once said this about. Our founding fathers here in this country brought about the only true revolution that has ever taken place in man's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another set of rulers. But only here did that little band of men so advance beyond their time that the world has never seen their like since evolve the idea that you and I have within ourselves the God-given right and the ability to determine our own destiny. But freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Hour three is next. Listening to Steve Dace. 